join with me in turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's going to be in full. Chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, and I lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. By who suffer not a woman to teach, nor to assert authority over the man, nor to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, in charity, and holiness, with sobriety. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for your word for the opportunity we have to gather, gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to look into your word and to um, help us to have ears to hear. Father, give Pastor Jamie wisdom as he um, dives into this passage and others seeks to explain it to the things that he has been thinking about and studying. I pray that you will give him that grace and wisdom. Father, thank you for this Christmas season and for the opportunity we have to be... Um, Interacting with people in a, in a different way, I pray that you will help us as a church body to be taking advantage of the opportunities that are before us and to be um, intentional, to be looking into seeking those things out and just observing the opportunities that you give to us. I pray that you will do an awakening of, of the season, of, of a dark season that was of darkness outside, of physical darkness, but of time of light. May we be also that light in this time as well. Thank you, Father, for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. In your bulletin, you got a yellow sheet, and that's for the discussion questions in Sunday school uh, today. And you might notice that they're divided. All men and women. With, of course, the obvious idea that everybody answers the all questions. The men work on the men questions, and the women work on the women questions. Alright? And uh, so make sure you pick up one of those um, for your bulletin. Um, what, did, what did we see last week in First Timothy chapter 2? What's Paul's point? What's his emphasis? There's even one word that he repeats over and over and over and over that concept at least. That's that's the action that's supposed to come out of this is prayer. But what is it rooted in? 
God's heart for what? Jay? All, all, all yeah, all peoples. All peoples. God's heart for the world, right? You saw that word all or all men or that idea repeated frequently. And Paul says that I want you to pray for these things to happen. For God's heart for the world through his son Jesus Christ who he sent to connect with the world here. Through Obviously it's going to happen through believers. And that's the, that's the heart behind this, this passage. He says... First of all, so the very first thing here of, of importance, it's not saying the very first thing in order here, but the first of all, of first importance, when we assemble, prayer is important. And prayer even lists out what it is here. Supplications, petitions, prayers, intercessions, standing in the gap for other people, giving of thanks, thanksgiving, be made for all men, unless somebody... Try to wiggle around the fact that does that really mean the government? <laughs> he says, be made for all men, for all, for kings and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And then we saw God's heart with this. This is a beautiful thing. This is something he welcomes, acceptable, he receives. Um, and then he gives the grounds for this. God our Savior will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his heart's desire. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then he gives what God has provided for this, the Son, Jesus Christ. Now we come to verse 8 here. And this is all still a complete thought here within the assembly. And so he says, I will therefore. So on the basis of this, therefore. I want, is what he's saying, the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting or dissensions. How many of you have ever done something where you needed extreme focus? And there were distractions that were speaking into that focus and hindering that work. Maybe you were the kid holding the flashlight while your dad worked on the car. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Holding the flashlight for your dad working on the car, and you start to get get distracted as a kid, and your dad needs that light on that one spot so he could get that nut off. And you found out the importance of not having distractions <laughs> on whatever degree that was. right? Or maybe it's when you were taking a free throw at a basketball game at a crucial point, and you needed it, you needed your mind to focus on that rim and get that ball through the hoop. Or maybe you were sewing a particular stitch or, or putting together a particular pattern or an art project or maybe a, a carpentry pop project or craft, and you needed to have your eyeballs glued on that without any outside distractions. What is a distraction? Distraction is something that takes away from the efficiency of what needs to be done, right? It's something that, that moves away from something that needs to happen. Um, and here in this passage, this is about eliminating distractions so that the church goes forth in warfare. You'll notice the first thing that he says is he addresses the men. I will, therefore, therefore, I want... That men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And Paul is trying to eliminate distractions 
And by this I mean <clears throat> distractions, things that would, that would keep us from building up Christ's body and moving forward. So people grow in Jesus. And he talks about the men needing purity without anger and fight so they can pray in line. The chapter 2, 1 through 7. And then women focusing on what really matters and not distracting from that and learning with open hearts and servant minds. Now, these kinds of passages don't we don't, we don't understand the fullness of them until we understand that when God looks at the church, he looks at it as a family. And so these, this is family order. In fact, he calls the church a household, a family. And so in 1 Timothy 3, he tells us the reason for these pastoral letters here. He says in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, and the word there is household. And what he, what he means is not this. What he means is you're the household. You're the family. How to conduct yourself in the household, the family of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then he gets into God's wonderful gospel again. So the church is a family. And as a family, you have a certain order that helps your family operate smoothly. Or should, right? You have things that are different responsibilities that different people have. You have um, a, 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 a structure of, of roles and authority. You have expectations. Um, you have systems, right? And that helps your family operate. And so Paul is giving this letter here and this instruction here to help the family operate smoothly. That's the heart behind this. And so he says to the men, men, you're to lead the assembly in prayer. Because prayer is preparing for battle. When you get together with your family, you're relying on the Lord and His help to equip you to train. You're asking Him for His resources. You're getting on your wartime walkie-talkie. And you're dialing into the general who has everything that you need for supply for your battle. And then you're to lead the assembly in prayer. And so, I want men, therefore, on the basis of everything he said in chapter 2, 1 through 7, this primacy of prayer in the assembly, Paul says, men pray everywhere or in every place. And the idea there was an emphasis to different house churches. There, every single house church was to have this as their, as, as, as their focus here. And they were to pray in a certain way, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and doubting. What he's saying is this. Men, get in line with the presence and the plan and the power of God in prayer. Do war with hands lifted. War is the men leading the assembly in war prayer. You see, guys, the enemy wants you to hide from prayer. He wants you to not take the ownership of it. He wants you to expect somebody else to take the initiative for it. Instead of you. He wants you to be scared because you're worried what others may think. But he's putting an emphasis on the public prayers that the church is to take. But the word says we need men to step up in battle and see the weapons of communications that we have to the artillery unit, the cannon, that is operated by the one who never misses. And to delight, to turn his weapon 
through our prayers, upon the darkness that we are praying back, to take it out and bring in the light of His truth and grace. And so He says, Men, I want you to lead in prayer. I want you to raise holy hands. The idea of raising holy hands was a Jewish posture in prayer. A lot of times we do this, right? And that, that's a posture. It's not the only one. This is also a posture in prayer. And this kind of a posture emphasizes the Lord that I am a willing and ready vessel, Lord. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And this was a, 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 an emblem here of, of somebody standing in the gap. And so he says, you're to lift up hands. You're to have an openness to God posture. You are speaking to the God of heaven. And he says, uh, he gives two things. He says, positively and negatively. So how are they positively to lift up their hands in prayer? What does the verse say in verse 8? What kind of hands? Holy. Holy. Okay. Holy hands. Okay. They are set apart to God. They have sin confessed. They are walking in God's word. They are walking in his light. They, are, they have made themselves right with God. They are to lift up holy hands. And then negatively, he says, these are the things that are not to be um, included, uh, to, be, to be eliminated. What does he say, verse 6? Without what? Without wrath, anger, and, and doubting, the King James says. The word is, is, is a word that has to do with a, um, uh, uh, a quarreling, disputing. And the reason it's translated doubting is because it can go one of two ways. It could be an inner doubting, right? An inner turmoil, a quarrel. Or it could be quarrels from without with other people. And so he says, I want you to be able to have single-mindedness, a single-mindedness in the things of the Lord. I want you to be able to do this without anger. And I want you to be able to do this without disputings, without a, um, an inward or outward um, uh, quarreling that's going on inside. Why is that important? I mean, how, how can you pray with unholy hands, right? <laughs> the blood of Christ needs to be applied. And how can you pray with anger in your heart or something? Well, you can to confess that, right? <laughs> but you can't until that is, right? That's what he's saying. What is anger, by the way? Anger is a frustration about our control abilities, isn't it? When it comes down to it, anger is about control. The things I can't control that I want to. And the things that I am controlling that I think I have, but then my kingdom crashes down, right? Anger's about control. Isn't prayer just the opposite of that? Isn't prayer bringing things to the Lord who can control? And so those are the things that are to be put out of, of, uh, of, our, of our prayer life. And we're to lift up holy hands in every place the men are to pray. Get in line with the presence, the plan, and the power of God. Do war. Lead the assembly in, in prayer. When, when there's prayer to be asked, or when there's opportunity, guys, to, to, to uh, 
to say for, to, uh, for, for, for you to pray, you ought, you ought to be the one taking the initiative in it. Not expecting someone else to do it or not expecting the same two or three people to do it. It's a privilege. You're speaking to the God of heaven on behalf of the church and you're calling him to do his work, which he promises to do. So there's the men. They only got one verse in this passage. Ladies got a lot longer. In other passages, men got a lot longer. And then women have shorter passages. But the men are going to come up in chapter 3 again. Don't worry. Don't worry. Now he says, likewise. Which is interesting, right? In line with all this that he said, likewise, in the same manner. Or in the same way. He says, I want women to adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness, or modestly and discreetly, he says. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by adorn themselves with what? Good works, inner beauty. As it is proper for women. But which becomes women professing godliness, or in accordance with women professing godliness, with good works. Good works were the central activity of the women of the early churches. And do you know what was at the foundation of good works, specifically for the ladies, although the men are to hold the practices as well? It's something that somehow is an acceptable, respectable sin in our culture today. We've neglected hospitality. And hospitality was at the root of good works. The foundation of good works had at its basis there, hospitality. Because hospitality saw your home as a mission base. An opportunity to use your home as to, to launch a lifeline, lifelong trajectory of service out of your home in the church households. It was impossible for the early church to become these communities of the gospel without hospitality. Because first of all, where did they have to meet? In homes. Can you imagine trying to do that today with the way people think about hospitality or don't think about it? It's a struggle. There's a surrender there, right? And I think there was a struggle in the early church as well. That's why Peter and Paul have to talk about hospitality as something to not do grudgingly. Right? And to pursue it. Let me show you, even in this book here, in this letter here, how hospitality was so such a key thing. First, first Timothy chapter 5, a couple chapters over. When you preach through books, you're not supposed to jump ahead to give away what's coming up, right? To steal the thunder, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he talks about widows. And he says, here are the widows that you need to pour a lot of support into. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 9 talks about these particular widows, and he says in verse 10, well reported of for good works. And you can put colon and this bullet list of stuff. If she had brought up children, if she has lost strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. And then there were some younger widows 
who were not doing those things, but were using this uh, uh, widowhood here um, in a wrong way. And Paul says, they need to, and they're going from house to house, in verse 13, and they're idle, and they're busybodies, and they're just gossips. And he says in verse 14, I will therefore that the younger women marry their children, guide and keep the house, keep the home, give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Good works were the central activity of women in the early church. Um, how vital were women to the progress of the gospel? Well, think about the story of Lydia. Lydia comes to Christ in Philippi, right, in Acts chapter 16. She's a leading woman in the city of Philippi. She believes along with her household. And she brings Paul in their home, and the church starts there in Philippi. And Berea, in Acts chapter 17, you see leading women coming to Christ. In Acts 17, 10 through 12, many of these leading women went on to host churches in their homes. As seen with, with Nympha and the church in her house in Colossians 4, 15. Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, she's a benefactor to Paul. She, she helps fund and provide for his ministry. She's an emissary for him to the church at Rome. She delivers the letter here. He builds a network and probably laid um, uh, strategic uh, uh, fundraising opportunities. Priscilla and Aquila. There's a reason it's always not Aquila and Priscilla, but Priscilla and Aquila in the scriptures there. Unusual to have uh, that her, her name mentioned first, but they were a key team ministering at many levels with Paul and, and hosting a church in their home in, in Corinth and in Rome and, and in Ephesus. Priscilla may have been some kind of nobility here. Um, and she was prominent. Uh, her name's listed before her husband and Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, who Paul says were two women who served as key co-workers with Paul. And there was a, there was a, there's an important part here to the ministry here in the ministry of women. And look what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Instead of drawing attention to yourself of what you're wearing, and some of these leading women in society were dressing pretty fancy. And Paul says, keep it simple. And instead, let the thing that shines be this inner transformation of open hands to people, of good works. And then he says this, Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer or allow not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So here's, here's what he's saying here. Just as men are to respond and submissive to the Lord, the women in the church family better respond to the men who are leading the church communities and not challenging them, but submitting to the biblical instruction. Specifically, they're to leave it to the men to exercise the authoritative teaching in the churches and avoid challenging them and engaging in public debate or dispute over the teaching of public gatherings. That's what he's saying here in this passage. The order of the services probably would have been a little different than what we were experiencing right now today. They would have followed what would have happened in the Roman culture there, what's called a symposium or banquet. They would eat first. And they would have some kind of discussion. Then there would be the reading of Scripture, perhaps the Old Testament Scriptures, if those are available. 
or <clears throat> copies of the Apostles' letters, followed by a teaching or, 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 or discussion or both. And then, after the meal, <clears throat> after the meal um, they would take the Lord's Supper together in that. And Paul says then, um, <clears throat> when I do not permit a woman to teach, he's talking about public instruction that involves dialogue and arguing, in a good way, <laughs> persuading, in front of the people and about the teaching that um, has to do with this, the particular office here, um, which he'll go into in chapter 3. He's not saying you can't exhort and give advice in private. In fact, in other places he says we're to teach one another, right? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He talks about the women teaching the women, the older women teaching the younger women in Titus chapter 2. But there, even the idea is to encourage them in their home life, build strong family homes. But what he is saying, the public teaching, the authoritative instruction, the continued role of that is to be deferred to the men. And he grounds this in the book of Genesis. He grounds this in creation. And so he says this in verse 13. For Adam was first born, then Eve. For Eve, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And so, by the way, welcome to one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament today, in December, when we're thinking about Christmas. Welcome. It's work. It's hard work. Getting through the text and understanding it. But it's important, it's key, because it contributes to the assembly. And so when he says, I, I do not allow a woman to teach, he doesn't mean uh, she, she can never teach. What it means is the authoritative instruction in that continued role here. Outside of the authority of the eldership. Not supposed to happen. In fact, he lists who is supposed to teach in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. The overseers must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given the hospitality, able to teach. By the way, CDC doesn't let men off the hook on hospitality either. Able to teach. He says, I, I do not allow women to teach, nor do you usurp authority to exercise authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now here's, here's the key to help you understand this passage here. That word silence is the same word that's used earlier in 1 Timothy. Where do you think it might have been used already? I'll give you a hint. That we may lead a what? Quiet and peaceable life. And so here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that when you come to the assembly women, you zip your lips. It's not what it means. It's the idea of a quiet spirit. Okay? Now, Paul's told us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that that's supposed to be true of all of us, so we lead, lead a quiet and peaceable life. What's a quiet and peaceable life? If you saw someone in the community who was not leading, someone in the, in, the, in the greater community, who was not leading a quiet and peaceable life, what would be some things that would mark them? Swearing. Okay. Okay. Angry. Angry. They would be stirring stuff up, right? There, there, there would be a, there would be a, um, 
like a like a like a hubbub of unnecessary things that follow them, right? And Paul's saying, I want there to be such a spirit that there is it is without unnecessary distraction from God's purposes in building up this church. This is part of the that we may all lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, if you said somebody was leading a quiet and peaceable life, would you mean that they are silent people? No, not necessarily. All right, and and so he's saying that that this is this is to characterize the family, the church family here, um, because God has already given specific teaching instruction to 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 the other roles of elders here, um, and then he says, here's what I'm going to ground it in verse 13. Adam was first formed, then Eve. You remember in Genesis, God made Adam on the dust of the ground, and Adam names the creatures, right? In Genesis 2, and as he's naming the creatures, you know what he begins to notice? Oh, there's Mr. Giraffe and Mrs. Giraffe. There's Mr. Hog and Mrs. Hog. But here, it's just me. Right? And he, and he realizes this, and God says, it's not good for man to be alone. He puts him to sleep and he creates a woman out of his rib. Close to his heart. And then the scripture says, She will be your Azer. She will be your helpmeet. The word Azer is used of God as our help. It's a dignified thing. It's not like a you serve me kind of thing. It's a coming alongside and helping in the task that God gave. But Adam was to be the one who was, was to be in front. He was the one who was to lead in that. And to lead in such a way that was not the way the Gentiles lead, like Jesus said, from the top down, pushing people down. But it, leading is lifting other people up. In gentleness and strength. Using your strength for that. And so, Adam was first formed in Eve. In other words, Adam has this particular role here. Adam has a responsibility with great power comes great responsibility. All right, he's starting. Um, Adam was first formed in Eve. That's that, that, there's there's a reason for that. And then verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now here's what it's not saying: women are gullible and stupid, so watch out. That's what it's not saying. What it is saying is this, and it's very interesting here. <coughs> He's saying this. Eve's sin was not that she was naive. Eve's sin was that she totally took that temptation as a willful attempt to overthrow the creation order. She hoped in eating from that tree. She hoped for what the serpent had told her, that it would be true. Now, what did the serpent tell her? If you eat from this tree, you will what? You'll be like God. And she swallowed that hook, line, and sinker because that's what she wanted. That's what she wanted. Eating from that tree, she hoped that her eyes would be opened and she would be like God. And Adam was over here doing everything right, right? And unbeknownst to, to, to him, this was going on, right? 
know, the Bible says Adam was right there with her. He was right there with her. And was he exercising his care? Was he getting in the way and saying, no, stop, don't listen? Was he, was he uh, uh, exercising his commission to guard, to keep the garden and drive that serpent out? No, he wasn't. He backed off. He was passive. Adam was responsible. And so Romans 5, though Eve took that fruit, and she shared it with Adam, and he engaged in it with her, who becomes the picture of sin? Or Adam's, right? In Adam we all die. That responsibility that came with his leadership. So that's what that's what Paul's saying here. Adam is not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression there. Uh, uh, Adam Adam knew all along the woman the woman followed that hook, line, and sinker um, with the idea that I will be like God in a wrong way. But notice the grace. Notice the grace in verse 15. If you can if, 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 if you can um, tell people something and just do it in a harsh way, it doesn't go very far. Real prophecy, real truth telling has grace accompanying to it. And so Paul in verse 15 says, notwithstanding. Or, but. So in contrast to this, right? The grounds of this instruction that was earlier, and the grounds of it here. But she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety or self-restraint. What is he saying here? <clears throat> There's a lot of different opinions about this, and there have been some really bad ones over the years. But here's what I think he's saying from the context of this letter. When he uses the word saved here, when we hear the word saved, Paul uses the word saved in a variety of different ways. It's not just the one word fits everything here. Okay? He, he, when we think of the word saved, we think of being saved from the penalty of sin, eternal punishment and hell, right? There's another way Paul uses the word saved. It's the idea of being saved, and it's the idea of, being, uh, of sanctification. There's another way that Paul uses it, and it's the idea of we will be saved. Even though we're already saved, we will be saved. He's talking about future glorification when we're saved from the presence of the sin. And here I think he's referring to it to sanctification. Growing like Christ. Because look at the end of verse 15. If, right? With the condition that they continue, that they endure in faith and love and holiness with self-restraint, self-control. What does it mean to be saved in childbearing, though? What about women who don't have children? Because not every woman does. Some are single. And there's, 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 there's a big overarching thing here, and then there's the, the specific thing I think he's talking about here. I think he's saying generally, in verse 15, pour into your homes 
for a quiet and peaceable life, flourishing in the good life as a first priority. Well, where do you come up with that? Well, look what he's already said. Or, excuse me, look what he will say, as I've already showed you, with how he desires to see women honored in 1 Timothy 5. The widows that they were to support were those who were alone and forsaken, who trust in God in verse 5, 5, 5, and continue in supplication and prayers night and day. Um, the widows who have been faithful in their marriages in verse 9, well reported of for good works, if she brought up children, if she lodged strangers, washed the saints' feet, and the afflicted, diligently followed every good work. He wants the younger women, in verse 14, to marry if they can, to bear children, to guide the house, to not give any occasions to the adversary, to blaspheme, to speak reproachfully. say, well, is that a consistent theme? Um, go, go with me to Titus chapter 2, to see that this was the order that Paul was instituting in the churches, Titus chapter 2. Where the older women were to encourage the younger women in verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to be temperate, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet. Um, it's the idea of sensi- sensible. Chase, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Whether the world likes it or not, there's a special power that God gives to homes in the role that women have in it. And shining the light of Jesus out of it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. And if our homes aren't ordered properly according to Christ's design for his churches, and men, we got to take the responsibility for that. This isn't just a, a, a lady's thing here. Then we can't expect our churches to succeed, right? If a church is a family of families, we're only as strong as our families. Right? Christ has set forth through his apostles a household code that our churches have to, have to follow. And ladies are key to that in a beautiful way. We can never become a powerful, one-minded movement of Jesus and the Spirit without understanding and adhering to this. And what he's teaching is, is this, and since churches are in essence houses of households or families of, of families, the church must have men leading or managing their homes well. We'll say in, in, in 1 Timothy 3, in fact, I mean, we look at all kinds of things for pastor's resumes. You know what the pastor's resume was, according to the Bible? His home? That was his resume? Building solid families is key to our churches being strong, to multiplying, to be effective in our local area. What a countercultural thing that is to, 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 to a community and area, right, that, that really has so much dysfunction with families. And God is saying, there is, a, there is, there is a, a work here that is beautiful and it is powerful and you might have never even thought of it that way, but it changes the world. <coughs> Homes are the heart that make up the heart of the churches. 
an expansion of the gospel. These are, are, are key to the expansion of the gospel. They're, they're key in 1 Peter 3 to winning their husbands and passing on the faith to their children. They're, they're key in creating this powerful uh, defense, apologetic to those watching through their, through their own homes. They're, they're key to a, a vital part of building the basic unit of the church, the family household. They're key to order and harmony in the home and in the household. You might say, well, does that mean they can never work? Have you not read Proverbs 31? A beautiful woman in Proverbs chapter 31 is an entrepreneur spirit. She's not neglecting the things that God's put her um, in her responsibility here in her home. She's using it to branch out. And there's different seasons of life, right? What about single women? How does, how does this fit for single women? Well, we all find ourselves at different states, right? Different stages of our lives. Um, there's some, perhaps like Lydia, or perhaps like Phoebe, who may have been single and been benefactors and businesswomen for, for different reasons. Um, there's some who are single as older women because you've lost your husband, right? There's, there's different reasons. But service can take all kinds of different forms. All kinds of different forms. Um, there's an un, um, unencumbering aspect um, to the uh, to, to, a, to a single woman that gives her the ability to really invest in God's work. Just like a single man. But the family's at the heart of this. It's at the heart of this. Hold the part. Seeing great significance played in God's work. And it's a beautiful thing when when we invite our singles into that as well, into our homes. Share that. I can think of as a, as a single guy for uh, a few years. I had a, a particular family at the church I served in Oregon, and they would have me over every week for, for dinner. Um, and uh, they, they, they looked out for me. They didn't try to, to match me up or anything because uh, I already had a girl in Michigan I was interested in. Um, but they took care of me. And there's a, there's a powerful thing here. So what Paul is saying is this. In a culture and society that previously did not allow women to be disciples, did not allow women to learn, Paul says, suck in the learning. Get in it. Dig in it. I want you to learn as disciples. In fact, the very word there in chapter 2 uh, in verse uh, in verse eleven, let the women learn. Is the word math is is the word we get the word disciple, making disciples from math taste. Let them let them be disciples. Let them learn. Let them follow Jesus. Soak it in. In Christ, you have this open up to you. Take advantage of it and do so in a way that brings glory to God and not unnecessary distractions. Now, here's the beautiful thing about verse fifteen. In Genesis chapter 3, when man sinned, and God cursed the serpent and cursed the ground. And things that he already told the man and the woman to do, that would become very much harder to do now. Childbirth being one, right? Tilling the ground, bringing good from the ground work. He says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 
that there is going to be enmity between the woman and her descendants. But take courage in this, that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the foot of the woman. And so, if there's the idea in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the woman will be saved in childbearing and continue with faith and charity and holiness and sobriety, the way that has been made possible is through Jesus. Jesus who reverses the curse. Jesus who has crushed evil. Jesus, the man Christ Jesus between God and humanity. Jesus, the one in chapter 2, who Paul says gave himself a ransom for all. To be testified, to be revealed at the appropriate time. The one that Paul says, I am a proclaimer and a sent one, an apostle. I speak the truth in life, not. This Jesus who has a heart for all people. This Jesus is the one through which all of us are ultimately saved. As we look into his word here, we can rejoice that God has given us the snake crusher. Reverse the curse. Who gave his body to be broken for us. Who shed his blood as a, as a payment price for our sin. Who gave himself as a ransom for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you 